Somebody say praise the Lord. Amen. My message today is a Christmas message, but it's not a standard one. You know, sometimes as pastors, we, uh, you know, you're kind of locked in. You know you got to preach about Christmas at Christmas. But you think, after how many years, how can I come up with something new to preach? That's truth. That's relevant. Uh, so today... Uh, my message is not really a standard Christmas message. You'll get that next week. Don't worry. But today's message is centered around the nativity. And as I pondered all the players in the nativity, I, I thought about their role, their story, their part in the first advent of the Lord Jesus. And so for just a moment, I just want to stop and have us think about, um, you know, the the, the nativity and, and the people that were represented there. We've got a wonder, uh, wonderful nativity here on the table that someone gave to us a few years ago, and I, I just love it. Um, I don't think we've got an angel down there, though, but how many of you know the angels were part of the nativity? They were, they were there, and um, I remember back when we used to do a living nativity with the kids every year, all the girls wanted to be an angel with silver, silver tinsel in their hair and big wings and sparkly makeup. And, um, of course, the most coveted spot was the angel Gabriel because we had this giant set of wings to kind of set Gabriel apart from the rest of the angels. And, you know, Gabriel announced the conception of the Lord Jesus. He spoke to Mary and Joseph. And, uh, but all the angels had a really important role in the story of uh, that first Christmas. You know, the, the other angels, they appeared in the sky and they proclaimed the birth of the Lord to the shepherds that were abiding in the fields, watching over their flocks by night. They proclaimed the Savior of the world had been born. Listen to Luke chapter 2 for just a moment. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And this, of course, reminds us of the shepherds. They were granted uh, the privilege of being some of the very first human beings, the very first witnesses to the miracle born in Bethlehem. Having seen the child in the manger, they too became proclaimers of the gospel message that said that the Savior of mankind had been born. The other things the kids always wanted to be in the living nativity was, no, not the shepherds. It was the sheep and the cows and the donkeys and all the animals. Uh, Emmy's got a picture of her dressed as a sheep singing, um, singing with me at the keyboard from one of our living nativities. But I think the, the thing that stands out, best memory uh, from one of the living nativities was Bodie was dressed as a sheep and he was right down here and throughout the living nativity kept picking the cotton off of his costume and throwing it out to the people on the front seat. Never work with kids. They're completely unpredictable. You never know what they'll do. But then there were the wise men, the magi, and they had read the signs in the heavens. They knew that the time had come for the king of kings to be born. They came not only announcing his birth, but bearing prophetic gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
The first representing his kingship. The second is priesthood. And third, prefiguring his death. And how could we forget Joseph? A man who would be the earthly father of the Messiah. I can't imagine. Can you imagine the weight of responsibility that he must have felt? I mean, to get the news that he is going to be the earthly father of the Messiah. Not just of the Messiah, but of God himself. I can imagine he probably said, uh, I wasn't even ready to be a father, let alone the adoptive father of Emmanuel, God with us. And if you think he had a big responsibility, think about Mary. This young, young girl, the mother of Jesus Chosen from among all the women of Israel. Her womb would be the very vessel through which the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was to be born. I can't imagine the emotions she must have gone through. Scared, humbled, unsure, honored, fearful. I mean, how is one supposed to parent the very one that spoke existence, the universe, into existence? How do you teach this child to speak its first words, whose words literally produce life, creation, speaks judgment? What was it like to hold at her breast the one who is the very living water and the bread of life? Then perhaps last but surely not least in the nativity is the baby himself. Hannah sang a few weeks ago, I wonder as I wander. Out under the sky, that Jesus, my Savior, did come to die. For poor, ornery sinners or people like you and I. Do you ever wonder, how is it that God could come and be born as a man? How is it that he would be born of flesh and blood? The, uh, All of the power, all of the deity, all of the eternal nature, the endless nature of God poured into this little baby. And not simply occupying it for a few years, but for all eternity. And he did it not just to save us, but to die for us, to suffer for us, to shed his blood for us. It's a really beautiful picture that the nativity paints for us, isn't it? You look at it and you can almost hear the words of the song, Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. But then I realize there is something or someone who is missing from our nativity. A character that is forgotten, but who was there? Who are we missing from our nativity? Would anyone like to guess who's missing from the nativity? Maybe it's the drummer boy? Maybe it's Simeon or Elizabeth? No, not them. Maybe the innkeeper or his wife? Nope. The great red dragon. Gunner just figured it all out. You go, what? 
I don't see a dragon in Matthew or Luke. I've never seen a nativity with a great red dragon. I've never heard the Christmas story told with a great red dragon. You know, you can go on Amazon and you can search for nativities with a red dragon. And guess what? You won't find one. I, give me a minute, all right? <laughs> you see, it's not in the accounts of the birth of the Lord Jesus that we normally read at Christmas time. But you see, there's another account of the birth of the Lord that we need to focus on. Yet we don't think about it at Christmas time. Listen to Revelation chapter 12. Turn in your Bibles there with me. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that, he, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. I couldn't find one with seven heads and ten crowns, so this one's going to have to do. But all is calm, all is bright. I don't think so. Not in this version of the Christmas story. As we read the book of Revelation, I think we would all say there is nothing calm, there is nothing bright there. We must understand that nothing was calm in the heavens, in the spiritual, when Jesus was born. We must understand that conflict is central to the Christmas story. Again, we like to think of that beautiful scene, that nativity, the baby, you know, all the animals are laying down very well behaved in the nativity. But that's not the way it was. We love the joy of family gatherings. We love to sing away in a manger, no crib for a bed. We love the presents under the tree. But that, according to John, is not what Christmas is really like. It's not calm and peaceful. It's not quiet, snowy landscapes or mistletoe or stockings hung by the fire and chocolate goodies. It's conflict. It's war between the dragon and the seed of the woman. Before we jump into the text, let me tell you what is not here in this account of the birth of the Lord. There are some things, some very notable things missing from this version of the Christmas story. There's no Gabriel, no special announcement. No mention of a virgin, no census, no long journey, no shepherds, no sheep in the fields, no angels in the sky, no Bethlehem, no turning away, Mary and Joseph, no stable, no cows, donkeys, or camels, no manger, no swaddling clothes, no magi, no gold, frankincense, and myrrh, no King Herod, and no quiet night. This is clearly a Christmas story, even if the details are not the same. It's Christmas from God's point of view, from heaven's point of view. And there are very significant things that we find here. First, in John's account, there are just three characters. The woman, the child, and the dragon. So let's look at each one of these for just a moment. Number one, the woman. 
A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Who is this woman? Is it Mary? Yes and no. Certainly John knew that Mary was the physical mother of Jesus, but the woman in this vision was clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, and she wore a crown of 12 stars. You won't find anything like that in Matthew and Luke. The woman clothed with the sun goes back to the dream that Joseph had in Genesis 37 when he speaks of the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down before him with Joseph being the 12th. This speaks of Israel. Remember, this is a vision. Not everything is literal, and not everything is going to follow the order we normally find. It's meant to communicate a spiritual revelation. The 12 stars stand for the nation of Israel, one for each tribe, and the woman Israel herself. And so John is drawing here from the imagery from Joseph's dream to show us who this woman is. She is Israel, represented by Mary in the natural world. You see, for centuries, uh, the Jewish people had waited for the Messiah to come. The earth had waited thousands of years for the Messiah to come. Galatians 4.4 says that when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The phrase fully come speaks of something complete and fully developed, like a ripe apple ready to be picked or like a pregnant woman ready to give birth. She's feeling labor pains, ready to deliver her baby after nine long months. How many of you women can say, yep, after nine months, you're ready to go? It describes the moment in history. When the stage was perfectly set, the time had come. At that moment, not earlier, not later, God sent forth his son. But what does John mean when he mentions the woman crying out in labor pains? The woman in the vision is Mary standing for the whole nation of Israel. The nation agonized for generations. They waited, they hoped, they prayed for, they cried out for the coming of the Messiah. They travailed and labor century after century, and now at last it was time for the Messiah to be born. As Mary literally went through labor pains to give birth to Yeshua Jesus, spiritually it was the nation of Israel that brought forth the promised Son of God. Second, we have the dragon. It says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his head seven diadems, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. We know that the dragon is the devil because John presents him that way 13 times in Revelation. And in Genesis 3, he is called the serpent. His enormous size speaks of his power. The color red symbolizes his bloodthirsty nature. And the dragon reminds us of the devil's fierce, destructive nature. As Jesus said in John 10.10, the devil is a thief who comes only to steal to kill and destroy. 
And so while he may appear sometimes as an angel of light, he is really a fierce dragon, hell-bent on one thing, and that is destruction. Remember, again, this is a vision, not a straightforward history lesson. The dragon sweeps away one-third of the stars, knocking them out of heaven and down to earth. That happened when Lucifer rebelled against the Almighty Lord of heaven, and one-third of the angels followed him. As punishment, Lucifer and his angels were cast out of heaven. Revelation 12, starting in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Note where they landed. Here on the earth. When the enemy was cast out of heaven, when he and his followers, the demons, came to this earth. It became a demon-infested planet. Do you understand that explains so much of what goes on around us? That's why Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. He also is the god of this world, little g, but he's the god of this world. 1 John 5, 5.19 tells us the whole world is under the control of the devil. He is the prince of demons and the head of the kingdom of darkness. Now look at what John saw. Just as Israel represented by and through the person of Mary was giving birth to Yeshua Jesus, Satan drew near, intending to kill him. John says to devour him. You see, Satan came to Bethlehem. The dragon wanted to kill the baby Jesus. That's why I asked about your nativity scene. Do you have a dragon there? Probably not. None of us do. But he was there. And I understand why we don't put him there. A dragon ruins the peaceful, perfect scene we love to portray. We have, again, camels and sheep and oxen and, and all these animals, and they're all laying down so beautifully quiet, like animals always do, right? But we skip the dragon. While it would make sense that they were there, Luke 2 doesn't even mention the animals. You see, there is conflict in the Christmas story of an unimaginable order. The great red dragon was at Bethlehem to kill the Christ child. How many of you understand the devil loves death? He loves to destroy. He loves to kill. He moved Cain to kill Abel. He moved Pharaoh to kill all the Hebrew children. He sent invaders to wipe out and plunder Israel in the wilderness and in the time of the judges over and over again. He got King Saul to try to kill David. You see, the Messiah was to be born of the line of David, and if he killed David, he could wipe out the line of Messiah. Through Haman, he tried to wipe out the whole nation of Israel. He sent the Greeks and Antiochus Epiphanes to profane the temple and force all the Jews to worship the false god Zeus. At Bethlehem, he moved Herod to kill all of the boys of Bethlehem. 
He tried to kill Jesus at every opportunity, even before he was born, by wiping out the line of David and then by trying to destroy the whole nation. And after Yeshua ascended into heaven, listen to what the Bible says. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The serpent poured water, like, uh, poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You see, when the dragon couldn't wipe out David, when he couldn't wipe out Israel, when he couldn't wipe out the Messiah, he went back to his war with Israel and those who honor the Lord instead of Haman. He's used men like Hitler, Stalin, and now Hamas to, in attempts to murder all of Israel, the people of God, for he hates her. All he wants to do is to devour. She was the woman whose seed will crush his head and slay the dragon. And finally, the baby. Verse 5 says she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who is going to come and rule the world with a rod of iron? Jesus. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This child, this seed of the woman, was prophesied about thousands of years in advance. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent, to the dragon. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, God himself, way back in Genesis, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, the Lord told the serpent, the devil, there will be warfare between the woman and the serpent. Like Mary, who represented Israel in Revelation, Eve represented the yet-born nation as well in Genesis. It was not specifically Eve that was the woman, but Israel. And although the serpent would bruise the heel of her offspring, he, Yeshua, Jesus, the seed of the woman, would come and crush the head of the serpent. That's why the devil has tried so hard to kill Jesus. The baby born in the manger, born of a virgin, is destined to become the dragon slayer. He would be the one who will crush the head of that old serpent, the devil. And let me make this point clear. That's the way you deal with serpents. How many of you understand if you've got a poisonous viper, you do not pick it up by the tail? There is only one way to deal with snakes and dragons, and that is to crush the head under your heel, or maybe better yet, cut the head off completely. There's no other way to deal with a serpent, a dangerous viper. But Jesus came. He was born. The devil stirred up the religious leaders against him. He finally entered Judas and on the night of the Last Supper. And when Jesus hung on the cross, it appeared for just a moment that Satan had won the battle. But no. All he did was bruise the heel of the Savior for just a moment. On the third day, Yeshua Jesus, the dragon slayer, rose from the dead. 
laying there in that tomb, life flooded into his body, his eyes opened. He got up, and as the angels rolled away the stone, he walked out from that grave alive for all to see. He put to shame all the powers of hell, utterly defeating Satan, that old snake. He ransacked the kingdom of evil, walking out of the tomb, holding the keys of death, hell, and the grave in his hands. Though his heel was bruised, death could only hold him for just a moment. Then God took Jesus back to heaven, just as John spoke about in his vision, where he sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the moment when he will return to earth. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so Genesis 3.15, it predicted a great war between the serpent, the dragon, and the seed of the woman. And again, Christmas means conflict. The dragon tried to kill the baby. He opposed Jesus at every turn. He tempted him in the desert. He met him uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane. He tried to keep him in the grave. He failed every single time. And what does this mean for us today? It helps us see Christmas in a new light. You see, Christmas is so much more than happy children and parties and mistletoe, and it's, it's really so much more than Hallmark movies. Christmas is good news for a world gone mad. The first verse of, beloved, of a beloved carol makes that clear. God rest you merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. You see, peace on earth means that there is a war in heaven. Peace between us and God means that a battle had to be fought for our salvation. Peace on earth means war in heaven. While Mary sang, the angels battled. At Bethlehem, we have to understand, God launched a mighty counteroffensive that started with a baby boy named Yeshua, Jesus, born in a stable to a virgin. At Bethlehem, God struck a blow to liberate the world from sin and death. And again, his frontline soldier, his only soldier, if you will, in the battle was this little baby, a tiny boy. And so if Christmas means anything, it means there is a cosmic conflict engulfing the heavens and the earth. It means there is a mighty war raging between the dragon and the one who was born in Bethlehem, the mighty warrior. Christmas means that God wins in the end. The world had no idea what God was up to. How many of you would say a lot of times, I still have no idea what God is up to? I wish he'd clue me in once in a while. Only in hindsight, only looking back do we understand the dragon has been cast down into ruin. Evil will not win. The babe of Bethlehem will make sure of that. Revelation 20, these are events still to happen in the future, says this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. 
and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him. Verse 10, and the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is why the babe was born in the manger. To fight this war for us. He was born to come and slay the dragon to crush his head. You know, I think sometimes we have made Christmas just a little too beautiful. And because of it, we miss the importance of it all. We love, again, the serenity of it all, of silent nights, holy nights, where all is calm and everything's covered in a fresh layer of snow. We're not in agreement on that, Barbara. We love the joy and happiness that it brings to us as we gather with family. We eat chocolate. We dream about what lies under the tree. But again, Christmas from God's perspective means conflict. It means war, but it's not an eternal one. It's one that has been won. It's a war that's been won through the blood of Yeshua, Jesus. And that is what Christmas is all about. Freedom to the captive. Life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sin. Healing to the broken and wounded. It's all about the birth of the Savior who crushes the head of the serpent. And if you think about it for just a moment, as I begin to close, you know, Christmas has a few colors associated with it. What are the Christmas colors? When you think of Christmas colors, what do you think of? Red and green. Green typically is associated with life, is it not? But almost overwhelmingly, all of you said red. Why is the color of Christmas red? It's the blood of Jesus. The color of Christmas is red not because of a jolly fat man's suit. It's because of the blood of Jesus. Christmas is red. Life has been granted to those of us who have been washed in the red blood of Jesus. So this Christmas, do not forget the eternal grace that has been given to us who have been washed in his blood. Do not forget that the manger cannot be separated from the cross. They are forever tied together. He came, he was born in the manger, in the stable, to go to the cross and die. Do not forget that Yeshua, Jesus, came to put an end to the war which engulfed humanity when Adam sinned. Do not forget that while Christmas means conflict, the war has been won. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. That's why Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts 
will do this. And so John gives us a very different picture of the Christmas story. He distills it down to its really, the really important parts. The woman, the baby, and the dragon. His focus is on the conflict, the war which is raged in the heavenlies. And he reminds us of why Yeshua Jesus was born and of his great victory. He tells us that though the world is full of conflict, victory and peace were born for us at Christmas. And so God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. And he was born to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. Are you thankful that Jesus came to destroy the dragon today? Say amen. Stand as we begin to close with a song.